I always want to tell people, like, just go easier on yourself. Like, just be kinder to yourselves. So many of us are beating ourselves up because we don't do this or we didn't do that or... And I'm telling you, there's actually an emotional, logical reason and try to find it so that you can like just really become whoever you were meant to be because everyone's got some special gift to offer. Every performance improvement anyone can want is on the other side of a better approach to the so-called negative emotions. Hey my friends, this is Nishant and welcome to another episode of the Nishant Gurg Show. My mission is to help people get in touch with their emotions and feelings, connect to themselves and being a source of healing. My job on this show is to invite the world-class experts to deconstruct the practices, routines and habits to help you live a fulfilled and abundant life. I have a request for you this time. If you have been listening to this podcast for some time and if you find it useful, and helpful please help me in spreading the word about the show by telling one person in your friends and family that would mean the world to me today's guest is denise shell denise is a performance coach who uses neuroeconomics and modern psychoanalysis in her work with hedge fund managers and professional athletes she is also the founder of the rethink group she focuses on the positive contribution of feelings and emotions in high pressure decisions she is the author of market mind games she leverages her background in neuroscience and modern psychoanalysis to solve the mental mysteries of successful investing trading competing and leading teams she is known for her uncanny effectiveness in resolving mental blocks and decision conundrums in this episode denise discusses the role of emotions in decision making understanding our feelings decision making in life and investing experiencing peak performance resolving mental blocks and how she coaches professional athletes using intuition versus impulse in decision making relationship with fear and much much more so please enjoy this wide ranging conversation with denise denise welcome to the show thanks so much for having me Thank you so much and I had been looking forward to this conversation for many many months finally I'm glad we are over here and I thought I will start by asking you about your passion as your passion in snowboard as a skier into mountains you are very much into nature so how did you develop this passion and when Oh wow that's an interesting question no one ever asks me that You know, it happened to me. I in high school, I went to a church that had, you know, a huge church, so they had a big youth group and had all kinds of activities and one of this was in northeastern Ohio. Believe it or not, there are hills there, but basically they'd have ski trips for the teenagers. And I just like, well, I mean, the first time I ever went, I like skied backwards into a tree and grease dripped on me from the chairlift and it was positively awful. But somehow through all of that, I completely fell in love with it. And then in a crazy sort of way, you could argue have organized my life around skiing. And the pandemic just offered an opportunity to, to escape New York City and, and move to a ski town, a mountain town. How often do you go for a ski? I got 66 days in this year. <laughs> But that's a little bit unusual. The only other year I would have gotten 66 days in is the year that I quit IBM when I was supposed to go to Stanford Business School and instead said, "Uh, I want to go to graduate school in psychology." So I quit in January and went to Aspen for the winter many centuries ago, but other than that, you know, it's a few days here and there. But I'm not going back. I mean, I won't go back to live in New York City. I'll visit but I'm going to live in the mountains. When you go for a ski, how do you feel internally? What emotions does it generate inside you and in your heart? Wow. I spend a lot of time asking myself what am I feeling and why? And honestly, with skiing, it's almost hard to answer, but it feels to me as if I'm flying. 
even though obviously my feet are connected to the ground, it feels like what I imagine it would feel like if I had wings and I could fly. And it's just, I mean, it's just exhilarating. Like I have a, a wizard, <laughs> a mentor, but I call him a wizard. <laughs> and he's like, I don't get it. Sliding down the mountain on ice. It's not sliding down the mountain on ice. It's a lot more like flying. It just, it feels so unencumbered, I guess. It, free, I guess. But honestly, the, the truth is I've tried to answer that question a thousand times and I can't really. For someone like me who has never ski in my entire oh. life, oh. so what would be the first learning step for someone like me? Well, you first got to decide whether you want to ski on two skis or snowboard, you know, on one snowboard. I've been told, I mean, I've never snowboarded, even though I've coached Olympic snowboarders. I've been told that snowboarding is a little harder to learn the first couple, three days, but then, then you get it and then you can do it. Whereas skiing's kind of hard to learn. The, but if you have a good instructor, it's not so bad. But basically, you have to go to a small mountain and get an instructor because it's just tediously frustrating also at first, like the boots and snapping in the boots and like getting on the chairlift. It's all kind of all the stuff around it that's required to do it, you know, to get you to the top of the hill so you can go down. There's a lot of ancillary stuff around it. It's got to be really great for everyone to go through all the work. I mean, even the getting ready and, you know, even living in a ski town, putting your boots on, getting your gloves, getting your helmet, make sure you have your pass. Do you have the right jacket on? Like it's a big ordeal to get to the top of the mountain, but it's worth it. You mentioned about church. So while growing up, did you go to church with your parents? I did not really so much. My dad didn't go to church. My mother did. And I went, she took me. But what actually happened in seventh grade, I got beaten up by the most popular girl in my public school. And I mean, I was only a child. I didn't know how to throw a punch. And she beat the crap out of me, frankly, for stupid seventh grade reasons. And I just wanted out of that school. And so one option was a Christian high school. And I chose to go there. And like all my friends there went to this big church. And so then I ended up going to that same church. Do you remember why she punched you? Well, somebody, the truth is, I told a bit of a white lie to another girl who told that girl that I told a really big lie, which I didn't. Yeah, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> I, I pretty much have never told a lie since because like that was one wake up call. But it, it was really, it was like one of those ridiculous things where like my little white lie was something about like her brushing hair, my hair with her in the bathroom, some really stupid thing. The other girl, the other girl was one of those instigator kind of people who's always trying to set up trouble. I, of course, I didn't know that as an 11 or 12 year old or whatever I was, but that's what was happening. She turned it into something to make it into something. You have never lied since then? I won't say never. <laughs> I mean, I once remember deciding to lie when the guy I was dating was out with another woman and like, well, I was mad and I I managed to actually lie to his doorman and everybody was amazed that I pulled it off, including him, because I just, I mean, I, you know, I'm sure I've told a white lie here and there and I'm hardly a saint, but I, I have a really hard time not telling the truth. Like even when it's not in my own best interest. I'm curious to ask you, why do you think people usually lie about things? Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, the, the easy reason is there's something about the truth they fear. You know, like if the person knew the truth, you know, if the person that's being lied to knew the truth, the person being lied to would, you know, think badly of the person doing the lying. They would reject them. So, you know, oftentimes it's about manipulating someone else's perception. I'll give you a really good example example in which Please. I didn't lie and I should have. So, you know, everyone knows that I'm 
in this lawsuit with billions over the character Wendy. In the summer of 2017, Andrew Ross Sorkin, who's one of the people involved in all of this, and this was long before I sued them, called me and it was clear he was trying to negotiate some sort of something. And his some sort of something involved me being on Squawk Box. And I thought to myself, Andrew, you're not going to put me on TV for five minutes and think that, you know, that's going to solve all of the other stuff that's gone on behind the scenes. Well, that's what I was thinking. So in any event, he calls me back. We talked twice and he calls me back and he's like, yeah, we want to have you on Squawk Box in September and blah, blah, blah. And I said, that's a good first step. And it was because, and it's just, I mean, I'm just, this is like ridiculous. Like I'm an idiot for being like this. I did not have the heart, even though that was basically an adversarial situation in a crazy business negotiation in New York City. I didn't have the heart to make it sound like, oh my gosh, one appearance on Squawk Box is going to make me so happy that I'll be over the things that I'm unhappy about. I just, I couldn't do it. I couldn't be that disingenuous. So I was like, great. That's a really great first step to which if you could hear the phone call, he's, he's like, what do you mean? Wait, what? Well, now, like what's happening? And he spends the, like nine or 10 more minutes trying to get me to tell him what I was really thinking. Like any other person would have just kept their mouth shut. But I don't know. I think it was getting beat up in seventh grade. It's like too much of a risk. So I'm like compelled to tell the truth to my own detriment. There are always consequences of telling a lie or not telling a lie. And in this situation, I believe you chose not to tell a lie. How do you become comfortable with facing the consequences of facing the truth? Well, I, like in that case, I'm mad at myself for not lying to it. Well, I, I wouldn't even have been lying. It would, I mean, I define lying as if you allow a person to think something other than the truth you've effectively lied. Like if you know that you say one thing and they think X, Y, Z, but you really mean ABC. You know, you have effectively lied if you mm -hmm. allow them to believe something else because you're aware that they have a misperception. And now I would like to move forward. Yeah. When you were nine years old, your father explained to you what is a stock. Do you remember what did he tell you about stocks when you were nine years old? Like he said, you could own parts of companies. You know, you could own a little bit of a company. He worked for Goodyear, as did my grandmother and my grandfather worked for Firestone. So in Akron, Ohio, these big rubber companies. And, you know, I knew of like AT&T, the big telephone company. I was like, wow, you can own a part? Like, wow, that's like so cool. You know, I didn't understand the difference between owning an infinitesimal amount and being a controlling shareholder as a nine-year-old. But that's what I remember. And at what age did you start investing? And before we get into this question, could you explain to us a little bit about you and what you do for the people who may not be aware of? I am basically a performance coach for mostly hedge fund investors, but also long-only fund investors, which is different than a hedge fund, and professional traders some professional athletes. And now I have a whole series of startup or small company CEOs. And it's really just helping people, you know, become the best version of themselves. And now going back to the question, at what age did you start investing in your own personal life? I remember asking my dad if I could have $100 to put in the stock market at the, when we had that first conversation. You know, I kind of think he said yes, but I also kind of think I didn't do anything. You know, I went off being my nine-year-old self. I mean, when I started out at IBM, I, you know, picked my, my mutual funds for my 401k or IRA or whatever it was. In. The first real trade I remember doing, I mean, like really, really, really was buying Wrigley gum. I don't know how old I was. I was 30-something. And it was with the guy who had been a floor trader who eventually got me into trading. But he thought that, I, that Wrigley was a great buy. And so I bought like a thousand shares of Wrigley at $88. And he told me, well, you only have to send 44,000 in. I'm like, what? 
I had no idea that there was this thing called margin where you didn't have to pay the full price. And again, being the girl from Akron, Ohio, and the really conservative father, I just sent all the money because I didn't know any better. What was your motivation to get into trading in 1994, if I remember the year correctly? Yeah, it was convoluted. So this guy, I had dated him, and then we were just really good friends. And he'd been a floor trader, really good floor trader. And I hung out with some former floor traders because they'd left the floor, but you really hadn't started trading what was called upstairs on a computer. And I happened to be with him one day downtown Chicago. And we ran into this guy and the guy's talking to my friend saying, we're going to develop an upstairs trading office. You know, there's networks, you can get, you know, real time quotes. This is 1994. And you should come talking to my friend. And then my friend, the guy leaves, my friend says to me, you should come. And I'm like, what? He's like, you know, he's always, he'd always told me, he tried to get me to buy a weather future seat on the board of trade in like 1992. And I'm like, weather future seat? What the heck are you talking about? But I was, all I was doing was writing my master's thesis and, and filling out PhD applications. And so I was sort of like, well, I could actually, because it isn't really a full-time job to write my master's thesis and try to figure out where I'm going to get a PhD. So I did. And it started out like, well, you can keep track of our trades during the day because you didn't get your intraday profit and loss at that point in time. He's like, so if you keep track of our trades, he and this group of guys that end up going, we'll kind of teach you how to trade. By October, I had my own account and they were on their own for their P&L. <laughs> you mentioned floor trader. Who is a floor trader? So, you know, people have seen in movies pictures of these trading. Well, you still see the New York Stock Exchange and the guys in jackets. But it used to be in Chicago in particular. I mean, there are other places, but Chicago in particular. There were a number of floors where trades were executed and guys, and mostly guys, some women, but not very many, in very colorful jackets, screaming and yelling and waving their hands and the, and the hand signals have meaning. So Trading Places is a movie that everyone knows the trading floors from. They don't so much exist or there's very few left because everything's computerized. But for a long time, that was where trades really got executed. You know, two traders on, in the pit, waving their hands at each other and agreeing on buying and selling something at a given price. I am getting this dumb question in my mind. <laughs> what is the difference between trading and investing? Time frame. So investing, you tend to hold for a longer, a long period of time, longer, longer. Trading, you're just in and out on a, you know, whether it's, I mean, monthly, weekly, daily, hourly, minute by minute. So, you know, the market's always moving back and forth. And, you know, there's thousands of assets that can be traded, right? When, when trading, you're just trying to get the short-term price moves. We're investing, you're getting into something for the longer term, thinking that it's going to like really, truly increase in fundamental value as opposed to just like intraday or interweek swings in price. Based on what you just said, I am an investor. I'm not a trader. Mm. So if somebody wants to get their starting in trading, and it can be very risky, so I will say it with a disclaimer, this is not an ad advice. This is an educational podcast. So please check with your financial consultant. So if somebody wants to start in their trading, what would be the first few steps? Oh my gosh. Well, the truth is, you know, in the age of social media and, and the internet to what it's become, you know, there are thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people you can find that teach trading. So you got to find good ones. Are there qualities in someone, good qualities in someone to be hired for? Well, in an ideal world, you know they make money themselves and they're not just teaching you how to do it. Now, there are people, there's this strange irony within that. There are people who actually know how to do it, but have trouble doing it psychologically. You know, maybe they feel, they feel guilty about trading for a living because it doesn't seem like a real job or they feel like they don't deserve the money. But there are 
plenty of people who trade for a living and provide some sort of educational service. And if you go onto Twitter and you start looking for them and you, you really intend to find someone who knows what they're talking about, you can sort through people. You know, now though, I mean, like, and even in the pandemic and these stock trading apps like Robinhood, where people could use a very small amount of money and trade. I mean, like when I got started in that upstairs firm, you had to put up a minimum of $25,000. Most big brokerages will let you do, I think it's four trades a day. I'm, I'm kind of removed from this world these days. You know, if you do more than four, you're considered a pattern day trader and then they'll put clamps down on you. But let me talk, you want to, you want someone that will teach you what the market is and you need to understand like what the game of the market is, as opposed to just, you know, do one, two, three, and you'll make money, which is what a lot of people default to. You got to find an educator. You got to give yourself a lot of time. And by a lot, I mean, three to five years, which people don't want to do. Do you recall any instance when you lost money, your own money in trading? <laughs> yeah, of course. Oh my gosh. I, I, a funny one is when I very first started, not very first started, I'd probably been at it a year. And this guy that ran this trading firm had told me that I had the best instincts he'd ever seen, but he could, didn't believe a woman could trade. And I was like, Bob, like, what am I supposed to do with that? Is that, but in any event, so there's this thing where you can short a stock, meaning you sell it before you buy it and you sell it first because you think it's going to go down and then you can buy it back for a cheaper price. So it was the fall of 95 and all of the semiconductor stocks like Micron and AMD and Texas Instruments, all these stocks, these companies made chips for computers. Those stocks started moving up. Now, I knew nothing about seasonal patterns or like I never do this now. But I started shorting Micron at like 65. You want the price to go down. I held on to it and continued shorting it all the way to like 97 or 98. Wow. But it did break. It broke and came back into the 80s, I think it was. And I basically broke even on that. Or law, I don't know. My The guy said that was like, the bravest and the stupidest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> but my, I took a huge, huge, huge loss in, I guess it was 2008, 2007 or eight. And this was, I'd been involved in a private placement and I knew about the company and I believed in the company. And at one point the stock was worth lots of money to me into the seven figures. And then like it started to, to reverse and, there were short sellers in there, and I basically lost the whole thing, which was painful. Anybody who's, play, who's played in this game has taken a big loss here or there. So in those circumstances, when you go through pain, it could be in losing money or it could be in any area of your life. How do you manage that painful emotion? What practices do you have in your daily life? Well... My central practice is to accurately answer the question, what am I feeling and why am I feeling it? With no editing and with the absolute intention to get the real bottom line answer. Now, that's different than a lot of people. Like I'm searching for, you know, do I feel afraid, disappointed, panicked, hurt, crushed, like whatever. And, and then, first of all, what is the feeling really? And why? Like, what really? Because it's usually not the superficial thing. It's usually you're making a prediction about the meaning of some event. And it's actually the prediction that's upsetting you so much. And when you figure out what that is, oftentimes you actually have a piece of information that's useful. And you're usually not nearly as upset as you were because you realize oftentimes either the prediction is just based on your past experience or it's so unlikely to happen. So I'm always trying to teach people how to answer. What am I feeling and why? Get the answer right. 
play with what's the worst that can happen. Like I was coaching one of my coaches. I have a couple, three coaches who coach for me now. I mean, I still do coaching all the time, but, and we were talking about one of his clients, one of my coach's clients. And he's like, well, he's afraid of missing out, which is the thing in trading all the time. And I'm like, yeah, okay. So he misses out. Then what? Well, then he'll feel bad. Okay. We'll feel bad. So then what, you know, and then, and well, then he'll like be embarrassed. Okay. Then what? Like I try to get people to expose that prediction that's embedded in there through the question, what's the worst that can happen? Because oftentimes if people do, it just loses a lot of its power. This is very powerful. What am I feeling? Why am I feeling? What is the worst case? So this can be very difficult for a lot of people to just identify the yeah. feeling. There are so many emotions. How do we name that we are feeling disheartened or hurt or sad, angry, frustrated? So what are the practices to cultivate this kind of framework, Denise? Well, one, believe it or not, is to like figure out what you can feel and then use a thesaurus and look up that word and see what other words there are for it and you know, see if any of the other words feel more right. There's actual research that shows the more words you have for a negative feeling, the less the negative feeling gets in your way, called emotion differentiation. Mm -hmm. So practicing with words, like understanding all the synonyms for fear, frustration, and disappointment. Being okay with saying you're annoyed or you're disappointed or you're dismayed. Like people have a real resistance. Plus, I mean, in this day and age, there's so much advice that tells you you're not supposed to do this. So people kind of feel guilty about doing it. But they also feel, they generally feel afraid. If I admit my real unpleasant, unhappy feelings, what will happen? What will happen to me? What will I do? Like, will it overtake me? The truth is when you can give yourself the respect and the empathy and the acceptance to just admit what you really feel, it's empowering. And you're giving yourself the thing we all need, right? Understanding and empathy from other people. All human beings need that. But you can give it to yourself, which basically means try to get comfortable with these unpleasant feelings and don't, don't judge them in any way. Don't criticize them in any way. Do you, do you write on this framework or you just go through? In your mind? Well, I, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, right? So for the most part, I just do it in my head. But uh, people who are new to doing it should definitely take advantage of writing. Like you can just get out a word doc. You need to get out a piece of paper and a pencil and just let it rip, right? Whatever you're feeling. Or you can get a word document. In both cases, you can either rip it up or you can delete it. No one has to know but you're trying to use the paper as I'm a non-judgmental listener. And there's actual research that shows with athletes, you know, if they fail in a competition and they're upset, if they write about their feelings about the failure, they get over it more quickly. Now you, you coach athletes, people who are in entertainment industry, people who are in hedge fund investing and many other C-suite leaders. So at what point in your life did you decide to go for performance coaching? You know, that's such a fun, it was, I didn't really expect it to happen. So I did ditch the MBA from Stanford and I did then go to Chicago and get this master's degree in neuroscience. And then I did ditch the PhD to become a trader. And then I don't know how many years into that, I was in New York. And I did start taking classes at this Institute of Modern Psychoanalysis. And through those classes, I found out that modern psychoanalysis, which is different than Freudian, had had some success with schizophrenia, which you're not supposed to be able to do through talk therapy. And I was like, oh, I literally, I said out loud in the class, well, gosh, 
if it can help schizophrenics, not to make fun of that, but it, you know, in a class, I said, if it can help schizophrenics, it would help these crazy traders I work with. <laughs> and that was like the seed. I mean, you, if, if that seed hadn't been planted, which I think was 2001, we wouldn't be sitting here talking. Because I started thinking, hmm, hmm, hmm. Because all the years I'd been trading, I'd read all the trading psychology books. And they were all very cognitive and have a plan and follow the plan. And I knew they only sort of kind of worked. And so I was still stumped by what would really work. Like there had to be a thing that would stop traders from doing stupid stuff. Because a lot of traders can make a lot of money and then they have some Achilles heel thing they do. And I still, like, I didn't think that was a solved problem. So then a couple of years later, that school asked me to publish my master's thesis. I updated the science and Antonio Damasio showed you had to have emotion to make a decision. Who is Anthony? He, he's a professor at uh, University of Southern California. He wrote a book. He's written a number of books, but the one I'm referring to is Descartes' Air. Descartes, the philosopher, said, I think, therefore I am. And the point of Dr. Damasio's book is, I feel, therefore I am. I can actually see his books on my shelf because I use them in graduate school. But when I, so I updated this in 2003. And I had to say, you, you know, the research is showing you have to have emotion to make a decision. And I was like, oh my gosh, this changes everything about trading psychology because everything in trading psychology would be take the emotion out of it, take the emotion out of it, take the emotion out of it. And I literally was just talking to someone in my trading office. And he said, you have to write an article about this. And I looked at him like he had two heads. I'm like, who is going to publish an article? <laughs> like, I am nobody, like nobody. He's like, well, actually, I'm really somebody else. And I'm trading here under a false identity. And he was trading with this famous trader. And he knew all these you know, journals and trading books and magazines. And he was like, let me introduce you to so-and-so. And I'm sure they'll publish an article by you. And that then actually happened. My first article that ran in December of 2004 called Freud's Path to Profits. And then people started calling. They wanted coaching. And I was like, oh, oh. And so I went back to those modern psychoanalysts and said, if I take on some coaching clients, will you help me, like, you know, mentor me? I mean, I'm not going to be a psychoanalyst, but will you mentor me how to work with and talk to people? And they said, yes. And here we are. <laughs> in 2003, you launched your group, the Rethink Group, right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't called that then, but yes. What was it called then? Well, it was originally, it was originally called Talking Traders. Because, talking Traders? Yeah, because I just wanted traders to be talking to each other and talking about their emotions. And I was going to have like a group in my living room in New York. And... Then my broker, I traded futures at the time through the Board of Trade, and my broker said, well, we'll build you a website, and then we can help you advertise. And I was like, what? Anyway, we built the website, Talking Traders. No, Traders Talking. It was originally supposed to be Traders Talking. But when you look at that in a web, it's Trader Stalking. <laughs> so we're like, we can't do that. So we, we flipped it, and then I changed it to Trader Psyches. And then in 2009, I was giving a talk for the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And I was trying to like, and it was going to be a big talk with a lot of publicity. And in fact, it turned out to be the first time I was on CNBC. And I was like, what am I really saying here? I'm like, I'm telling these people they have to rethink thinking. Literally, I was at my desk around this time at night. And I was like, I have to change the name of the company. We are the Rethink Group because it's about rethinking thinking. Could you expand on rethinking thinking? Everyone thinks that you have to be linear and logical and take the emotion out of it. And you don't. And you can't really. It only seems like you can. Thinking is a different thing than we think it is. I mean, now the latest research is not only... Are we always predicting based on past experience? We are primarily predicting our future feelings. So literally, like what we think of as feelings and emotions are the foundation of human perception and judgment. It's not the logical analysis. 
And in fact, no one even makes the decision on the logical analysis. They make the decision on their confidence in the logical analysis. So, but people don't understand this. They don't, so it's like thinking is this different thing that's basically based in feeling. So how do we make better decisions based on intellect and emotions and feelings? We get used to cataloging our emotions. Like, so this, what am I feeling and why? We start asking ourselves that question all the time. And whenever we're analyzing anything, and I mean anything, we're asking, okay, what am I feeling about this? Like, what's my intuition, which is really what's my unconscious pattern recognition? What's my sense of what's right? Like, how much confidence do I have in the answer? What am I afraid of? So whatever, all the things you've been taught to do, you know, and I don't care if it's a decision to buy a house, a decision to switch jobs, a decision to make a big investment if you're a hedge fund portfolio manager. You need to be analyzing how you feel about your data as much as you're analyzing your data. Because at the end, in the end, you're going to make the decision based on how you feel about the data. And so if you get conscious and intentional about knowing how you feel, understanding where that feeling is coming from and like what the meaning is, then you'll be able to make decisions that get you more of the thing you're actually looking for. Do you feel that sometimes we human beings make decisions based on our imp impulse rather than intuition? Oh, all the time. All the time. <laughs> what is the difference between intuition and impulse in decision making? Well, intuition, which, by the way, in academia is called visceral intelligence by quite a few people. It's, you know, intelligence in your body. It really is pattern recognition that's valid based on, like, what you've learned. It's calm. Like, it doesn't urge you to do anything. It's just like this sense of knowing. When you feel compelled to do something, like you have to do it, it's probably impulse and therefore it's suspect. So in that impulsive, in that impulsive intuition or behavior, should we wait to make decision or we should just pull the trigger when we are feeling impulse? Oh, you should wait. I mean, the, the trick, I mean, this is literally the trick of, of sophisticated decision-making, sorting through what's your real intuition and what's your impulse, which you can include, you know, it, I like to think of them as what's the information and what's the irrelevant piece. Jennifer Lerner of Harvard calls them integral and incidental. Integral meaning the feeling you have is, is a part of the decision and incidental means the feeling you have is not. I can't remember what caused me to say that. But the trick is you have to, like, you, you can get to know yourself better so that you know when you're agitated or, you know, you have a sense of urgency that you, is, is really cautionary. I believe that. Then whenever we feel agitated, let's not take any decision. Right. Just take a pause. Can we work on a problem statement that I currently have? Maybe sure. you can coach me right now. I could try. <laughs> so, so my problem statement is that I want to enroll for, for an amazing program, which is for six months. It's a mastermind program. And we are going to learn about mind, body, spirit, and so many different healing modalities. And the total cost is $9,000. Intuition says that I really want to do it because I will make better connections with people. I will have a rich environment. You know, I will get to connect with amazing world-class experts. But that fear or maybe the relationship with money is coming into the is, is the obstacle. And I'm not able to decide. I have filled in the application. I have reviewed twice, but I am not able to press submit. Could you? I mean, like, like if you did press submit, what would it mean from a money point of view? And it goes way back in the childhood days. Oh, I'm sure it does. But like, I literally mean in the present, like whatever the thing costs and whatever time costs, like could you, you could actually do it. Time is fine. Time is fine. I can manage time. And uh, maybe it is just the cost. I know if it was just $4,000 or $5,000, I will submit right away. 
and it is $9,000. So maybe that fear of uncertainty, what if I'm not going to get the value out of that six-month program? What I'm trying to figure out, to, it, 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 like I always do these things in layers. So like superficially, you know, I'm assuming that you're saying the 9000 the difference, the extra four or $5,000 mm-hmm. isn't going to mean you're not putting food on your table, right? Yeah. Like it's, not yeah. the, it's not the literal money. It's just yeah. like, is this really worth this actual amount of money? Correct. And I have money. Yeah. So it's not that. It, it, it's, it's literally like the value. I mean, superficially, it's the value. Just, is this going to be worth this? Correct. Like, I'm never going to go buy a Rolls Royce. I, I could have all the money in the world and I wouldn't buy a Rolls Royce because I would just never think it would be worth it. But like, I have a client who has a Rolls Royce, you know, and like lives to talk about it practically. So for him, it's got value. So, so you're not, you're just not sure the value's there. Yes. How'd you find out about it? How do you know about it? <laughs> a close friend of mine is conducting that and she is a celebrity in the medical field. So it's a private invitation. If money weren't the issue, I mean, if, if like literally, the, if you didn't have this question of value, would you do it? Oh, yes. No doubt. So what is your normal kind of relationship to money? And by that, what I mean is, you know, some people, no matter how much money they have, like they watch every penny. And some people are the opposite. No matter how little money they have, they don't. I mean, there are lots of and lots of variations on that. But I watch money wherever I spend. And I've learned to spend money on things that bring positive emotions and positive outcomes. So in the last two years, I've accumulated 300 plus books, physical copies, because I enjoy investing money in the things that I'm learning from. Mm-hmm. And again, in the last two years, I've done different, different programs and spent about $20,000 in different coaching or programs. So I have developed better relationship with money. And it comes, it, it is always, I think, should I invest that much, $9,000, $10,000? And I know that I will learn something out of it for sure. Well, yeah, but what you're really saying is, will I learn enough? Yes. Will I learn $10,000? Yep, and this is uncertainty. There is no guarantee. What, but literally, what is your gut? Like, what, when I say that question, will you learn $10,000 worth? What, literally, what's the first thing that happens in your gut? My impulse wants to say, yes, go for it. And I've been thinking about it for the last two days, that trying to delay that impulse feeling and trying to listen to intuition. Is it the right time? Or can I wait? You don't know what your intuition is saying about it, do you? You don't know yet. You want to do it. There's something holding you back. Maybe it's the extra four or $5,000, but maybe it's something else. So how do I go from here? What practices would you suggest me? I'd, I'd write down every single plus and minus you can think of to taking this course or this mastermind workshop or seminar. I'm not sure what to call it, seminar. Mastermind. It sounds like it goes on for a while. So I'd write down every single thing you can think about it and then start crossing off the things that don't matter to you. And see what you're left with. That's one. Two is, do you, I mean, you know, this is hard to coach you through this. Like this, I don't know you. I don't have any background. But if you remember your dreams, like how you really feel about it can come in your dreams. Dreams can often reveal to us things we're feeling that we don't want to admit. We're feeling, and even if we don't want to admit it, we just don't know, you know, because we're busy during the day. And and then like, what do you think about it when you're not thinking about, it? you know, you're like, you, you step out of the shower and grab the towel and some answer. Yeah, I want to do it. Like mm. when you're, it, the answer that comes to you when you're not thinking about it is more likely to be your true intuition. I love it. Thank you so much for guiding me through. And I would <laughs> like to say to all the dear listeners that this framework can be applied to any situation in our life, right? Right, Dennis? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the trick is to admit to oneself what you're really feeling. That's the trick. Feeling is the main component over here. 
<laughs> and I do not want to make this conversation as a personal coaching session. And <laughs> I want to ask you about something else. So in 2016, you coached, you did mental coaching with Olympic award winner, Lindsay Jacobellis, if I pronounce yeah, it incorrectly. So how did you coach her? She was already winning at the top level. So what oh. did you tell her or how did you coach her? Well, she was. She's the most decorated snowboard cross athlete ever. However, she had a mental block around the Olympics. So in 2006, when she was barely 20 years old, she was seconds away from winning the gold medal. And she celebrated too early, flipped up her board, fell. And I think it was a girl from Sweden, pastor, and she only took silver. She was excoriated by the press, hugely embarrassed. And, and she really suffered. She really, really suffered. So then she went on, you know, between the Olympic years to win everything. But when she got to the 2010 Olympics and the 2014 Olympics, she couldn't even get past like the quarterfinals as opposed to like, you know, in contention for a gold medal. So I had given a talk to her coaches and her coach said, you know, have I got a project for you? And you know, basically she's got a mental block. And so I basically set out to help her figure out what emotions she wasn't feeling and to help her understand that there was actually emotional logic to that mistake she made. There's an emotional logic to everything we do. And if we if we're open-minded and non-judgmental, we can find it. And once we find it, we can be much more accepting of our mistakes. And then we can really learn from them without beating ourselves up. So, you know, when you and I started, you saw some articles on the wall behind me. One of them is, is an article about my working with her. We helped her understand that in some sort of way, at 20 years old, her flipping her board was a bit like her dating the wrong guy in college and making her parents mad. She was like defining herself, you know, as a teenager, young adult. Granted, it wasn't the opportune moment to do that, but that's what she was doing. She was sort of rebelling against a lifetime of being groomed to be an Olympic athlete. And once I helped her make sense of that, like that that was a, really a pretty typical thing a 20-year-old might do, you know, drink too much in college, make their parents mad, whatever, she was able to forgive herself a bit and then go on in 2018. She placed fourth, but it was literally by, you know, hundreds of a second. She dominated the whole race until the very end. Are you saying that forgiveness was the mental block? And not forgiving was the mental block for her? Well, not understanding. She didn't understand why she did what she did. And so... She just beat herself up and the press beat her up. Even her sponsors beat her up. You know, she felt like she'd let the United States of America down. It was the first year border cross was in the Olympics and she was supposed to be the golden girl and win. But once she was able to make sense of why she did what she did, she was able to have the strength to deal with the press at the Olympics. And every time she goes and she's going to go again next year. She coaches for us now, actually, and she has one client, one young surfer client. But Yeah, I saw that. You know, she, she knows that the press will come at her again. Like, is she ever going to redeem herself from that? But once she understood it, this is back to what am I feeling and why, but getting the answer right. She didn't have any capacity to get that answer right on her own or with the other coaches she worked with. You know, that why she did it. You know, superficially, she was celebrating too early, right? She thought she was going to win. She was way ahead. She thought she was giving the fans a show, you know. But really, there was a deeper psychological reason. And so we got the why right. And then when she understood that, she was able to navigate better. This is amazing. And not to make this conversation personal, I will say a small thing. I enjoy playing table tennis. Mm -hmm. called ping pong in america and i play competitively these days and in 90 percent of the time i'm winning i'm winning in last few minutes i lose game and then this inner conversation that and you know that self-beating that why i did that you know and then what i'm doing is i take a break a few minutes i focus on breathing 
relax. It's okay to lose games. This is how I try to process. Right, right. Well, that's interesting. You know, we need to know like how your feelings change during the game and then like sort of what feelings come over you as you're winning and then you start to lose points and what that experience mm-hmm. is and like what, what the symbolism of it is. Cause there probably is some where it's not just about the game. Like it's about you as a person, because it's what always happens to all of us. We, I mean, traders do this in the market all the time. They use the market as a place to work out their self image. So that whatever happens to you is layered. Like, you know, superficially, maybe you start to get excited about you're going to win and then you are a little slightly less focused. I mean, I'm guessing off the top of my head. That's true. Very true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then like something goes wrong and then you're like, oh, oh my God, I'm going to do it again. And then you get nervous and freak out. And so then that causes you to like miss the next point. And then there's, some, there's something probably up. There's probably something, one more layer or two. And, I, and this is a great point. And when I tell myself to trust myself and be confident and the whole game shift, just, just telling myself repeatedly, trust yourself, be confident. Well, that's because you do know you know how to do it. So another thing you can do, though, uh, here's an ironic thing you can do, is just say, I'm afraid I'll do it again. Will I do it again? Yeah. So with Lindsay, I taught her to say, she, her starts had never been that great. She'd never been that fast out of the gate. She's just so good with technique that she could overtake people. And so when she started being in the gate saying, I'm afraid, you know, or I'm nervous, whatever the right word is, like, I'm a little worried, I'm terrified, that you got to get the word right for whatever you're, any individuals. She started getting out of the gate a lot faster. So it's this ironic, unexpected thing. So... Like I teach people all the time, like they're nervous going into meetings. Like one of my clients had dinner with like one of the most famous hedge fund managers on Monday. And I'm like, look, when you're walking in the restaurant, you can say to yourself, oh my God, I'm terrified. He's going to think I'm an idiot. I said, because if you do that, you'll be able to keep that to yourself. You'll be able to keep it a secret and you won't act that feeling out. This is beautiful. Thank you, Denise. So... When you were working with Lindsay Jacobellis, what other practices did you recommend to her if you are allowed to speak? Honestly, with her, it was really just about understanding herself, her own emotions, helping her not be. I mean, she's a super, super high performance, high competitor. You know, she just got such a competitive instinct. And if she doesn't win, she's really way too hard on herself. So in her, but everybody's slightly different, right? I mean, we're all similar, but we're also, we all have fingerprints and they're different and our, our psychologies are different. With her, it was just really helping her to go easy on herself, you know, and now that she's into her thirties, helping her understand that, you know, it's fine to take days off training. It's fine to prioritize your recovery. I mean, Tom Brady's winning Super Bowls at 44 because he manages his physical energy. And so just helping her not, not continue to hold herself to too high of a standard. Yes. And how, how much is the role of desire in peak performance? Because I'm, I'm asking you, you have, your name was mentioned in a recent article, setting the table with belief, how Kevin St- Stefanski turns desire emotion into victories from Cleveland Browns. And if- desire is huge. Like there's a whole Buddhist tradition about not having desire. <laughs> yes. I just, let's just say I look at it the opposite. Like, like, let's just take you in your class. You know, I don't know what your big picture goals are or what you really want, but that's one way you can think about that mastermind class is like, what do, does this fit into whatever it is I really want? And, and, like with, with my clients all the time, I'm helping them sort through, what do you really want? Like really want, like if you could wave a magic wand and get what you really want, what would it be? Like forget any obstacles or all the reasons you think you can't. Let's just figure out what it really is. And then say, okay, what would I have to do to get it? Even if it's just imaginary. And oftentimes when people look at their lives that way, they go, huh. I don't think it could ever happen, but 
if it could, I would be needing to do ABC now. So I'll start doing A. Like I tell people, look, figure that question out and then just do related stuff. Because like, you know, you want to write a book someday and you've never even written a blog post. Okay, just see if you can write some paragraphs. You know, see if you can write a well-formulated comment on an article. You know, can you put 60 words together that sound like you make a point in a way that people read the comment, you know, like, but that's leveraging your desire. If you figure out what you really want, it, it tells you what you should say yes to and what you should say no to. Saying no is hard. Right. But it, absolutely critical for achieving, you know, great success. Because none of us, I mean, there's a zillion things in the world all of us want to do. There's a zillion articles we want to read it, you know. You can't, we don't we can't we can't do it all so you really there's a whole art to saying no like to staying focused on what's most important to you and what's most important to you is the things you desire the most you remind me of a quote from Derek Sivers if information was the answer then we will we all will be billionaires with six-pack abs right <laughs> right exactly and I think about it every day that how can I apply 80-20 Pareto principle what are the 20 things 20 percent things i can do that will give me 80 percent results or 80 percent outcomes what are the 20 percent activities i'm doing that is generating 80 percent of negative emotions or positive emotions something like that right i just think okay what's you know of all the things that are on my to-do list what are the most important ones like that that are central to in my case, you know, continuing to build rethink is my it's my baby. <laughs> yeah. So fast forward. So what do you do when you wake up in the morning? What are the first few activities in your morning <laughs> schedule? You know, it's so funny you asked me that. Because this morning as I was doing them, I was thinking I should like write a post about this. I get up before my husband. I, you know, I play with the dog because he demands I play with the dog while I make his breakfast. I make my coffee. I sit down with my, I turn on CNBC. I sit down with my computer and this is the honest God truth. I check Twitter. I check my email. I check my calendar. I check my bank balances. I just like, <laughs> I like, okay. Like I just, I don't do any seven things of the most productive people or all those articles. I literally just, feed my dog, see what the markets are doing, enjoy my life and take a moment, well, more than a moment, usually like an hour. Let's check in. And it, I am a very organized person and I like need to know, okay, this is what's on my calendar today. Is my calendar the rest of the week in order? Are there any emails I didn't answer yesterday that I need to answer? You know, is there anything on Twitter I should respond to? Like, did that, you know, wire hit from that client in Asia? Like, is, can my tax bill be paid? You know, like, I just need to know all that stuff's in order. And once I do, then I'm like freed up from there. So depending on how early my clients start, I will either then go row, that, which is the exercise I'm doing now that ski season's over. Or I generally then have to start talking to clients. Perhaps this is a reminder to you to write a blog post. <laughs> About that I have a very, you know, average morning of, of feeding the dog and making my coffee and checking where the markets are. And I mean, I, it's nothing, you know, it's just like managing my life. But I will tell you this, because I'm alone, you know, my husband's still asleep. I just, I don't know. It's like a few minutes of silence where I can just get organized. And for me, that's like so energizing. Do you have any mindfulness or meditation or Buddhism practice to cultivate self-awareness in your life? I think it's, I honestly think it's this intention to know what you're feeling and why you're feeling it. Like I tell people all the time, I have kind of a meditative mindset in doing that. Like I don't, like last night, the dog woke me up at 3 a.m. I basically didn't go back to sleep, but I didn't need to get, like, I could just lie there and think, not in a, not a ruminating anxiety sort of way, just, so 
the time, giving yourself time and space to not be occupied, like to not be reading, to not be writing, to not be on social media, to just like, like I can, I don't like it so much because I'm so busy, but like I can go to the doctor's office and have to wait and I can just sit there and like let my mind wander. A lot of people can't do that. I think I partially got it from being an only child and I wasn't always entertained and, you know, there was no such thing as the internet when I was a little girl, but it's like, just give yourself space. Space is something, it is where we create new things. Yes. Our creativity lies. Don't schedule yourself every moment of the day. That time with my coffee and, you know, usually the dog wants to get up and sit next to me and like, you know, I have two, three hours sometimes in the morning before because I get up really early. It's just space. Like, and I'll sometimes make, you know, to-do lists and priorities and remember that, oh, you know, this project was got waylaid by this, that, or the other thing. And let's get back to this project. But I w- it's free form, you know, it's, it's like giving yourself time to brainstorm. And since you have, you have worked with so many amazing people in the world. So what is your relationship with, your personal relationship with fear? My personal relationship with fear. I'm kind of a big fan of fear. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think none of us would have graduated from college if it weren't for fear, because we would have just had fun. But we were afraid of, of not graduating. So we did the work. I think it's information. I mean, I always think it's information. What am I really afraid of? Like, it seems like I'm afraid of X, but what am I really afraid of? Which is oftentimes very personal and oftentimes irrelevant. But by exposing it, then you can dilute it or avoid it. I think all negative emotions in their pure form have information and motivation and the trick is to find them. So, And it goes back to your framework. Mm-hmm. What am I feeling? Why am I feeling? And what is the outcome? If X happens, then Y. Mm-hmm. If Y happens, then Z. And what is the worst case scenario? And accepting and forgiveness and all that thing. Your brain is predicting the way things are going to go and it's predicting a future emotion. And if you follow the trail, of the so-called negative emotions, you'll be able to find out what that prediction is. And then in a way, you'll be able to separate the future from the present and Mm. do the thing that gets you more of the thing you actually want in the future. As opposed to if if you're not conscious of the fear of the future, it often prevents you from doing the thing that would actually get you the thing you want. And so then that creates the repetitive pattern. So, Denise, you are a very busy person and not everybody in the world can have access to you and your performance coaching. And so what would be the additional resources or books would you recommend to us to really work on our mental blocks and achieve mental performance? And one of your books is Market Mind Games. We can have that book. And other than that, could you recommend some of the other resources? Yeah, I mean... Our website has a ton of information, which is the rethink group, like all one word, .net. I mean, I've, I haven't been very active in the past few years, but I've written a blog for, you know, since 2006 or something. It's also got tons of interviews that I've done. But there's a series of books that I usually recommend to people. The first is Nine and a Half Lessons About, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain by Lisa Feldman Barrett. And something called The Upside of Your Dark Side by Todd Cashton. And he's got a, a, what I believe is a German co-writer, but I'm not going to try to mess up that guy's name. But it's called The Upside of Your Dark Side. Upside of the Dark Side and Seven and a Half Lessons. Yeah. Okay. And what are you most excited about emotionally these days and in the upcoming years? Mm. What am I most excited about? You know what? I... I really, really, really love what I do. And some days, in fact, a lot of days, I can't believe I get to do it. So I know it sounds so cool, but it's like, I just look forward to continuing to be able to do it. Now, admittedly, I moved to a ski town in the pandemic. So like I count the days till ski season again, I admit it. (laughs) We are six months to the day today. But more of the same. And like, how do, I, how do I broaden the message? You know, in a perfect world, I'll write a second book 
And it will be like, you're always predicting a future feeling. And so let's use that to get you what you want. So it's really, how do I just, how do I do more of it? How do I, how do I spread the word more to honestly? And your Twitter feed at Denise K. S-H-U-L-L is very interesting. And I would encourage the listeners to really go into your feed. I'm a fan of your Twitter feed. <laughs> Most of the time I, I, I post useful stuff. Sometimes I get distracted by my billions lawsuit, but I try to, you know, thank you. I'm glad you're following me. And is there anything else I should have asked you I didn't ask you? Oh, you did a good job. I mean, there's always something, but this was really great, I think. Yes, I feel satisfied as well. And anything else you want to explore before we wrap up? Anything else that comes to mind? I just, I always want to tell people, like, just go easier on yourself. Like, just be kinder to yourselves. So many of us are beating ourselves up because we don't do this or we didn't do that or... And I'm telling you, there's actually an emotional, logical reason and try to find it so that you can like just really become whoever you were meant to be because everyone's got some special gift to offer. That is amazing. And I will say that I used to launch eight to 10 episodes a month and now I'm doing only four. I'm going easy on myself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Denise. It has been a beautiful conversation with you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode today. If you did enjoy this, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or you can visit https colon slash slash nishangarg.me n-i-s-h-a-n-t-g-a-r-g dot me. You can also share this episode with your loved ones to help them live a fulfilled life. You are not alone in this journey. We all struggle in life. There is no shame in talking about it. I go through my highs and lows. I get depressed and these practices help me in living a resilient life. You can also do this. You got this. Don't judge yourself. You are doing the best you can. And thank you so much again. Thank you.